Tyler's message this morning is uh, the miracles of Christmas. I, th I think most of us would agree on this December 23rd, 2018, that for children, Christmas is, uh, is somewhat of a magical season, if you use that word. I, thought, I looked up magic in the Webster's, and the word that you find right above the word magic is this word with a capital M, and it's magi. The wise men from the east who traveled to Bethlehem to pay homage to the infant Jesus, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and that's in Webster's Dictionary. So that next word's magic. Some people have a problem with that word, but the definition is this. The art that purports to control or forecast natural events, effects, or forces by invoking the supernatural, by invoking, by citing the supernatural, that which we are speaking about today. As we think about life, and we, 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 we mention the word supernatural, and that's beyond human beings. And in that world, as we who followers of Christ know that angels and demons have their comings and their goings. But when we think about the supernatural here, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that comes in and, uh, and, and fills us, actually. It, um, this should be a miraculous time for followers of Christ if it's magical for children, it should be a miraculous time for followers of Christ as we invoke the Holy Spirit to come and fill us this morning as we sing, as we read God's Word, as we talk about His birth. Jesus never really told us to remember His birth, but we have humans, we, have, we do that actually. Here's four miracles that happened at Christmas time. First miracle was who came at Christmas. Second, how he came, third, who he came for, and fourth, the miracle of why he came. I'm a, I like stories. They're one of my favorite parts of life. Soren Kierkegaard, 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian, tells a story to help us understand this miracle. He entitled this story, The Descent. He said, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared to breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by the love of a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her in an odd sort of way? His very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body with royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him, but... Would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she really? Would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden and to let sh shared love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. I, I think that needs to, to sink in this morning in our minds and our hearts. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concluded Kierkegaard. The king convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend... He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito. 
with a worn cloth fluttering loosely about him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on, he renounced the throne to win her hand. So while Kierkegaard expressed in parable form, the Apostle Paul expressed in these words about Jesus the Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took, his, took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. In his dealings with mankind, God often humbled himself. The Old Testament's one long line of condescensions to descend to be with. God, God descended in various ways to speaker Abraham, to Moses, and to the nation of Israel and the prophets. But no condescension could match what came next. After 400 long years of silence, God, like the king in Kierkegaard's parable, took on a new form. He became a man. It was the most shocking descent imaginable. Think of the condescension involved, the incarnation which sliced history into two parts and had more animals than human witnesses. Think, too, of the risk. In the incarnation, God spanned the vast chasm of fear that had distanced him from his human creation. And the gift that he bore has had great consequences in humans' life since day one. Because in this gift, and as he came, he gave humans the power of choice. I discuss this a lot with a lot of different people. He wanted an equal in love, and he wanted us to love us. He wanted to love us, and he wanted us to love him, not because he makes us, but because we want to. You ever thought about how Christmas Day felt to God? Imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, giving up language and muscle coordination, the ability to eat solid food, and the ability to control your bladder. God as a fetus or imagine yourself becoming a sea slug. That analogy is probably closer, actually. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. Kenosis is the technical word theologians use to describe Christ emptying himself of the advantages of deity. We, these finite minds can't even come close to even comprehending that one little bit, actually. John Donne in Holy Sonnet 15 said, "'Twas much that man made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more." God Almighty had moved into the neighborhood. He's came to live among us, to hang out with us, to, to show us how to live, and inevitably on that day He'll show us how to die, to give the greatest gift that we could ever receive, the gift of forgiveness and peace of mind and purpose and complete salvation. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 tells us, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. How many times have we wanted to know what God looked like? As, as Jehovah sits on the throne, it, it's, it's answered here in this first, this, this first verse in 15 Colossians 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. When men looked upon Christ, when we look upon Christ, we're looking upon God. That is God in all of his essence. He created, he existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all creation. 
Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, kings and kingdoms and rulers and authorities, and everything has been created through him and for him. Jesus claimed to be God. He did not leave any other options. His claim is either true or false. It is something that we humans have to seriously consider. Jesus questioned to his disciples, but who do you say that I am, Mark 8, 29? I think it's asked of us almost every day. As we get up and we get our clothes on, we get ready to leave the house, or maybe before you leave the house, whatever. It's, 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 it's like we need to hear those words ringing in our ears from Christ. But who do you say I am? Who am I going to be today in, in your life? So that was, that was who came. God himself showed up. That was the first miracle. The Father and I are one in John 10, 30. My favorite description of Jesus is God was skin on. It's, it's as close as I can come to even explain it in something his weak mind can understand. Second mode, or second miracle, is how Jesus came as a human baby. What could be more scary than a baby? Unless it has dirty diapers, right? So, God had at last found a mode where he could approach humanity that we wouldn't cower in fear. I always liked those Old Testament stories and even the new. The angel came. It just scared people to death. But here, God had found a way that he could come and live in, among humans, and we wouldn't be scared out of our minds, actually. He came into this crazy world of ours. I, I say to you today, if you've never been in the room where a baby comes into the life, in this life, you're, you're, you're really missing something. If you're a young dad or plan to be a dad somewhere. If you get that chance, don't pass that up. Dr. Ellis gets to experience that a lot. But for the majority of us, it's a once or twice time in our lives, actually. When we go back to Bethlehem, we've been to Bethlehem, Diane and I, many of you have as well, probably. But nonetheless, you try to recreate what that was like. We have sterile hospitals, and they are clean, but to, to grasp what happened that morning, Ken Geyer kind of takes us back there in this book that he published, and I quote, so let's go back. Let's go back. Some say it's a cave. Some say it was a barn. Doesn't matter to me. But it's, Ken Geyer is a great author. He takes us back to that night. A scream from Mary knives through the calm of that silent night. Joseph returns, breathless, water sloshing from the wooden bucket. The top of the baby's head has already pushed its way into the world. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face as Joseph, the most unlikely midwife in all Judea, rushes to her side. The involuntary contractions are not enough, and Mary has to push with all her strength, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her, and with a final push and a long sigh, her labor is over. The Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, light skin as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface, mucus in his ears and nostrils, wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid, the son of the Most High God, biblically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs. Jesus instinctively turns him over and clears his throat. 
Then he cries. Mary bears her breast and reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest, and his helpless cries subside. His tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing the infant king learns. Mary can feel his racing heartbeat as he gropes to nurse. Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? Joseph sits exhausted, silent, full of wonder. The baby finishes and sighs, the divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. Then for the first time his eyes fix on his mother's, deity straining to focus, the light of the world squinting. Tears pool in her eyes. She touches his tiny hand and hands that once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her finger. She looks up at Joseph, and through a watery veil their souls touch. He crowds closer, cheek to cheek with his betrothed. Together they stare in awe at the baby Jesus, whose heavy eyelids begin to close. It has been a long journey, and the king is tired. And so, with a barely ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol, without pretension. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys. A few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, and a furtive scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there was no one to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collared shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace. But only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. End of quote. And I think in some people's hearts, they're still asleep. First miracle, who came? God invaded mankind. The second miracle, how it came to pass as a baby. And then the third miracle, who he came for? He came for us. He came for us, ordinary people, if you will, not just a few privileged or a certain class or a certain caste system. Even though he was God of the universe, he wasn't born in a palace nor a sterile hospital. Actually, he was born in a manger in a feed box for cattle. And how we relate to him, he was born at the grassroots level and he didn't get any higher than that on earth. He never elevated himself over another person. And the first people to visit this newborn king were not religious leaders or royalty. There wasn't political figures. Actually, I don't know if you've studied much about the, uh, the shepherds were outcasts. They were social outcasts. They were, they were the lowest rung on the social ladder. They were pretty much nobodies, and they smelled bad. They smelled like sheep, and people called them names. It's about as ordinary as you could get, I guess. And we read these words about the first invites to see God with skin on in Luke 2, 8 through 14. That night, some shepherds were in the fields outside the village guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terribly frightened, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you'll recognize him. You'll find a baby lying in a manger wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. 
Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to all whom God favors. Of course, the Magi came as well. But one of the things that you've seen even in his first days and weeks and months of life, it was a variety of people from the highest to the lowest came, and they were all welcome. John 1.14, so the Word became human and lived here on earth among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. That's what the message says. I love how that reads. He, he came to be one of us. And he looked every ounce of Palestinian Jew, which he was. And what's the good news of this? God meets us where we are. We couldn't go up, so he came down. And it doesn't matter who we are, that he loves us all the same. I, I say this a lot because I still can't wrap my mind around it. There's nothing more or nothing less than you can do at this moment to make God love you any more than he does right now. It's an amazing thing to me. The shepherds came and they saw the glory of the Lord and the greatest miracle of all about Christmas was not how he came. It wasn't who he was in a sense. The greatest miracle was who he came for. He came for you and I. And miracle number four is that, that he came for us. Listen to these verses where Jesus explains why. This is why he came. That's the fourth miracle. John 18, 37. Jesus said, I was born for this purpose. I came to bring truth to the world. And my friends, how much do we need truth today? John 10, 10. Jesus said, I came to give you life in all its fullness. John 12, 48. Jesus said, I came to save the world, not to judge it. Truth and life and forgiveness and purpose and healing and all these things is what he brought to you and I. So people whom I love this morning, we come to this question of Christmas in a sense that you and I have to answer in our hearts, and it cannot be ignored. It's the question he asked his disciples in Mark 8, 27 through 29. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and they were walking along, and he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? So this is something that we, we all answer, and I pray this morning that we can say that he is our Lord and he is our Savior. He is just not somebody we know about, and that is the point. One of the things that Josh McDowell and C.S. Lewis both said about Christ in this answer, Jesus was either Lord, lunatic, or liar. Out of those three, which do you pick this morning? Is he your Lord? You know, that's the thing about salvation and coming to Christ. It can be anytime, anywhere, regardless of where we're at. Over 2,000 years ago, wise men sought Christ, and, and I pray that we have done that in our own lives. Who is Jesus Christ? I think this 
last clip pretty much explains it for me, and I hope it does for you. Let's watch. Before I created the heavens and the earth, I was. When the earth and everything in it passes away, I will be. I hold the universe together from the smallest atom to the greatest galaxy. It all is in my hands. The sun is hidden in my shadow. I have set the earth on its foundations and I rest my feet upon it. I stir the waters of the oceans with my fingers and shake the mountains with my breath. I am entirely holy and completely other. There are none before me and none like me who can question what I have done or what I will do. My kingdom is eternal and shall exist forevermore. I am the ruler over the kings of the earth. I am the prince of peace. I am the king of kings, the righteous king, the king of the Jews, the king of glory, the king of the ages, the king of heaven, and I am the Lord of lords. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am Jehovah Jireh, I will provide. I am Jehovah Rapha, I will heal. I am Jehovah Mekadesh, I will sanctify. I am Jehovah Rohi, I am your shepherd. I am the Most High God, your deliverer, your redeemer and savior. I am your shield and your strength and your defender, the eternal and everlasting God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Beside me there is no God. Angels and heavenly beings worship me upon my throne, and I will not give my glory unto another. I will not share my creation. I am a jealous God, and a consuming fire. I am the commander of the heaven's armies, and before me kingdoms crumble and rulers kneel. I am your harbor in the tempest. I am safety for the tempted and tried. I have come to set the captives free, to strengthen the weak, to heal the lame, to cause the blind to see. I have come to give you life and breath to breathe. I have come that you might know me. I have come that you might know my limitless love and endless goodness, my measureless mercy and never-ending grace. My forgiveness knows no boundaries, and my acceptance sees no imperfections, nor color, nor race, nor wealth, nor poverty. In me you are made clean, and through me you are sanctified. I am indescribable, incomprehensible, irresistible, and invincible. The heavens cannot contain my glory, death cannot consume me, life cannot last me. All knees will bow before me, and at my name every tongue will confess. Every tongue will confess that I am the great I am. Every tongue will confess that I am the God of gods. That pretty much explains it. There's a prayer. Uh, on the end here. This is how I come to Jesus. It was a prayer. It's not the prayer. It's a prayer. It was in the back of a little four spiritual laws book. But it's the fact that we can be in church for years and never say this prayer. I've known people that's done that. And for all practical purposes, we look at each other and we don't know. We don't have marks on us. We, 
in the end times we'll have a mark of the beast to buy or sell, but as followers of Christ, we don't have marks in our flesh. So we can't, we can't look. Hopefully, as we look at each other and the fruit of the Spirit pours out of us, we know that we belong to Christ. But I, if you've not accepted, this is such a big deal. If I could beg on my knees for you to accept Christ this morning, I would do that. But that has no bearing on it, really. It has bearing on the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart and you opening that door. It, the prayer goes like this, and you can say this this morning if you've never accepted Christ. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. I've known something was missing in my life. I just didn't know it was you. Thank you for seeking me even when I've ignored you. God, I want to know all the truth of you about myself and about life. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ at Christmas. Jesus Christ, I want to get to know you. I don't understand it all, but I want a relationship to you as much as I know how. I ask you to come into my life. Please forgive all that's been wrong in my life. I accept your gift of eternal life, and I accept your gift of purpose for my life here on earth. In your name I pray. Amen. Lord, I just pray, uh, this prayer was said this morning by people that don't know you, that they realize now that they're your child, and you've come in to dwell and give them a great Christmas in you. So that's my prayer here this morning, Lord. And Lord, as we've come in, many of have perhaps have come in damaged this morning and hurting and things going on in our life that only we know. I just pray healing for every heart here this morning as I raise them up to you. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for this dear family. Just ask your blessing upon it. For we ask in the name of Christ, amen.